I was listening to I listened to the radio uh, a lot, I guess, and I was uh, I think I was commuting. I can't remember what day it was, but I think I was commuting back from Philadelphia. And I was listening to the radio, and I was thinking of the sermon, and listening to the radio, and thinking of scripture. And on comes the, on the radio this segment in the talk radio where they do book reviews. And this is typically, I, I don't know why I listen to these things. They always make me feel uncultured. And yeah, I never read any of these books, and they're always uh, so like out there, but it's what everybody's reading, and I never read them. But nonetheless, I listen to these reports. It's almost like I like to feel guilty for being so uncultured. So that's what I was doing. I was listening to this book review segment. And the books were coming and going, and I was feeling guilty. And, uh, and then this book came up. And the name of the book was called Celebrity Checkoff. And that's, that's the book right there. It's written by Ben Greenman, and it's come out this year. Now, I don't know if the book's good. I don't know if it's bad. I'm not telling you to read it. I will not read it because I'm not cultured. This is just what I heard. I'm just telling you what I heard, okay? That this gentleman, Ben Greenman, he wrote this book, and Celebrity Checkoff takes two ideas and kind of pushes them together. On the one hand, it takes the short stories of Anton Chekhov, who is some famous Russian short story writer that I don't know either because I'm not cultured, but he is. People tell me he's really good, and you should read him if you were cultured, all right? And he had this ability to kind of develop a depth of character within a short story. That's kind of what he's known for, according to Wikipedia. Over here, <laughs> over here, uh, on the other side, uh, Ben Greenman took the shallowest characters in our society, those celebrity Hollywood-type people that we don't know anything about, but we think we know everything about, and he grabbed them, and he merged them into the short stories of Anton Chekhov, Celebrity Chekhov. And, and what he was trying to do, in kind of a literary sense, was to liven up or give depth to the very people in our culture and in our lives who we think are most shallow. This is kind of a way he described it. As American culture becomes more celebrity-driven, we, we, we may collectively start to lose the ability to see the insides of people. And I really heard that when, he, when this was in the discussion. Uh, someone who reviewed the book said that the book is a surprisingly compassionate window into a set of lives that have traditionally been considered tabloid fodder at best. But... The point of the sermon or the point of the discussion is not the fact that we've made these celebrities into tabloid fodder, but that is true, isn't it? We, we kind of walk through the checkout line and you see so-and-so did this thing and, and in our minds we draw all these conclusions about this person, but the reality is, is they're no less deep than you are. That they have dreams and they have hopes and they have fears and they feel their brokenness and they feel their lostness and they're doing the mistakes that they're doing that we're making all this to do about is really their quest for belonging and purpose in life. And they're just going about it in kind of somewhat tragic ways. But they're every, every bit as much of a human as you or me or anyone else. It's just they have a lot of cameras pointed their way. And I think Greenman is kind of using that as, as kind of a, a starting point for his book. Well, as I was thinking about this in the drive and thinking about the sermon, I realized we do the very same thing to Bible characters that we do to celebrities in Hollywood. 
is we, we, we get a character in the Bible who maybe only has three or four chapters dedicated to him, and we kind of have this tendency of making a very flat personality out of them. We, we assume because there's three chapters in the Bible, just three chapters, that he's a three-chapter person or that she only has a depth of three chapters. But the reality is, is all the characters in the Bible are just as real and just as human as you and me. And they have the same kinds of things that are influencing them. They're, they're, they're not shallow. They're just like we are. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look in Genesis 27 at the life of Isaac and the part of the life of Jacob. Isaac is one of these three character fellows. And we're going to kind of try to read it with, with the thought in mind of, let's, let's try not to be so flat with the poor guy. Let's try to recognize his depth of character. Now, what I'm going to do, a little strange, a lot of, a lot of differences this morning. I'm going to read the whole story. I'm in Ezekiel. Let me get to Genesis. I'm going to read the entire story. So Genesis 27, verses 1 to 40. And what I'll do is I'll take breaks every now and then so I can have a sip of water and you can regain your attention. Uh, But let's read the story together, okay? This is the story of the stealing of the blessing by Jacob. Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death now then. Get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skin. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. This is our first break. How you doing? Good? A lot of tasty food there. I'm getting hungry. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, he went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he he answered, who is it? 
Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked? I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father asked, Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So Isaac went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the heavens due and of the earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. All right, here's the second break. Yeah. Get a sip of water. By the way, did you see the five senses in that reading right there? Isaac's blind. Jacob comes in. He hears Jacob. And he says, it doesn't sound like Esau. And then he feels him. And then he tastes his food. And then he smells him. I always thought it was so neat how the five senses show up in this story. Let's keep reading that. Chapter, verse 30. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that I may give you, that, excuse me, that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives and his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck.
That's the story of how Jacob got the blessing. Now, what I'd like to do in the remaining time is, is instead of kind of going verse by verse, we're probably not going to go back to the story per se. Instead of going verse by verse, I want to deal with the characters in the story. So I want to spend a little time about Isaac and Jacob, and then we'll migrate into talk a little bit about or Isaac and Esau, and then we'll start talking about Jacob. And so one place to start here is with this reference to tasty food. Did you hear that in the writings? Tasty food, tasty food. I think it's said six times, six or seven times. Go make him some tasty food and make the tasty food just like he likes. There's, all the way through the story is this theme about making sure that Isaac gets the tasty food, and that's the condition upon which the blessing is going to be doled out. I mean, there's this fixation on the appetite of Isaac in the story. He calls in Esau and he says, go make me some tasty food and then I'll bless you. I mean, do you hear the way that it's, there's a fixation on it throughout the story? And the story certainly brings it to light. The idea of blessing and the idea of the tasty food are probably the two most common themes in the text of this narrative. And if you look at the life of Isaac over these past two and a half chapters, that Isaac gets two and a half chapters of the Bible. This is not the only time that tasty food has showed up. Can you think back? There's two other times. The first happens shortly after Jacob and Esau are born. Do you remember? Rebecca is pregnant with Jacob and Esau. She's in pain. She cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers her through a prophecy and says that the younger will rule over the elder and that the oldest son will have to bow to his younger brother, which was the Lord's way of saying that Jacob, who is the second born of the twins, will be the one who receives the blessing. It was understood that way. Rebecca certainly understands it from the text. Jacob certainly understands it from the life he's lived, the way he bartered out his brother's birthright. This is, this is an understanding in the household, is that there was a, God raised the clear expectation that Jacob was supposed to get the blessing. But why doesn't his father want to give it to him? Because the Bible says that he prefers Esau because Esau made tasty food. He says he, Esau was a wild boy who, who hunted wild game and that Isaac preferred wild game. And, and whether or not, the, whether the Bible's probably simplifying the favoritism of the father and the son here, I think that's happening. The Bible's certainly simplifying it into such a vulgar way that you see the silliness of the favoritism. That in, in other words, that Isaac's appetite is driving his desire in his actions. That it's what Isaac wants in his stomach, not in his heart, or not in his soul, that's driving what he does. That God has expressed his will from above, but Isaac's appetite is driving what Isaac is going to do. Isaac is going to bless Esau, despite the fact that God wants Jacob blessed. And why? Because Isaac likes tasty food. The second time this comes up is uh, an exchange between Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out from the wild country. He's starving. He's very hungry. And he says to Jacob, quick, make me some tasty food. And if you make me some tasty food so I can eat because I'm starving. And that's when Jacob says, you give me your birthright and I'll give you your bowl of soup. And it's the same exchange where you have one character who's infatuated or, or caught up in his appetites so much so that he cannot see the value of what he's about to trade away. 
that for him, the blessing now, the satisfaction now of having some food in his belly is worth the birthright of God. I think Isaac and and Esau are kind of two peas in a pod here. In fact, I think in a kind of a metaphorical way, they're examples of of the way we deal, the way all of us deal with the desires of this earth. Like for, I would say Esau is an example of, of someone who is outside the kingdom of God. Esau is completely enamored by what he can get in this world, the, the, the sensible things in this world, the things he can touch and embrace and get for himself and satisfy his appetites. That's the way the Bible paints Esau as kind of godless and caught up in what he can get in this life, so much so that he'd forfeit the blessing. I don't need the blessing. The birthright, I don't need the birthright. I, I, this is my world. And to that crowd, to these people, today and, and then, who would rather seek satisfaction in the things of this world, I'm going to say your life will be like Esau's. You're going to show up at the throne of God one day and you're going to say, bless me, Father. Bless me. And he's going to say, it is too late. But Isaac, Isaac is like his son Esau, except that you might think of him, you might think of him this way, as though he's inside the kingdom of God. He's a Christian who still battles with earthly appetite. I think we can identify with this. Someone who, who claims to know the truth, who God has blessed and included in the promise, and yet He's still attached to the things of this world. He's still caught up in the things that he can eat and and satisfying his own appetites. And I think that this this is us. This is the church. This is the life of a Christian is being raised up in the promises of God and letting go of the appetites we have in this life. Because when we have one and we still are, are... are captivated by the things this world has to offer, we will invariably disobey God. This is what happens. Isaac disobeys God because of his earthly appetites. And so I would ask you this morning, for you to ask yourself, do you have some appetite for something in this life? I mean, is there something here? Something here that you can taste and touch and feel and smell. Something that you have to have here that's not from God. It's not of God. It's not in part of the spiritual promise. It's completely earthly. It's completely worldly. But you have an appetite for it and you use it to satisfy your hunger. And it can be as particular as an addiction. right? But it can, it can extend. It, it can get much more shallow or let's just say much more insidious than an addiction. Okay, and addiction is like in living color. It can simply be, where do you find your, your sense of purpose in this life? Do you find it from God, or do you, does that hunger get satisfied from people around you? Where do you satisfy your need for companionship? Is that satisfied by God, or is that satisfied wholly by people around you? Do you see, and this is the idea, is when we identify these things as Christians, in your mind, when you identify them, because they're there, they're there, when you identify them, It's not as simple as saying, well, I'm just not going to do this anymore. That's not the sin. The hunger, what you're doing with the hunger is sinful. So sometimes we as Christians, we identify these things as, oh, I have an appetite for this thing. And we say, so I'm not going to eat that anymore. Well, what happens to us now? Now we get really hungry. 
and it drives us right back. The Christian life is one spent saying that I am going to fill myself with the Spirit that will satisfy my urge here. When we try to stop this, but we don't fill with the Spirit, it just creates a hungry hole that's going to make us return to the trough. It's going to make us return to the very thing we've been trying to avoid. But what God wants to do is God wants us to be more directed towards Him to say, from Him is where our appetites are going to be satisfied. From Him is where the Spirit is going to quench our hunger and our thirst. But that's not Isaac. He's driven by his hunger. So, so what I want to do, I want to reconcile Isaac this morning. Is Isaac good or is he bad? That's the question for us. Is he good or is he bad? Because we've had two and a half chapters now of walking with Isaac, and he's done some good things and he's done some bad things. Is he good or is he bad? Let me line them up for you. I got seven of them here. Two and a half chapters. When we start the Isaac story, we see him. He's meditating under a tree to the Lord. That's when Rebecca's showing up in the story. That, that's, that makes me think that Isaac is good. Good job, Isaac. Do that, right? The next scene we see is at the birth, where Jacob and Esau are born, and it says, when the boys grew up, describes the boys, and it says, now Isaac preferred Esau because he liked wild game. That makes me think that Isaac is bad. But then the next story that you get a hold of is Isaac in the town of Gerar when he's dealing with a famine, and the Lord says to him, hey, have faith, Isaac. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay here, and I'll bless you. Trust me. I'll bless you here. Isaac trusts the Lord, and he stays in Gerar, and that makes me think that Isaac is good. But then the very next sentence says, but Isaac feared that someone might see Rebekah because she's very beautiful and they might kill him on account of her. So he says, she's my sister. And that makes me think that Isaac is bad. But then the next thing you know, the Lord blesses him that very same year and there's this bountiful crop and the Philistines kick him out and he leaves and he goes and digs a well and they say, well, that's our well. And he digs another one and they say, that's our well also. And he says, fine, fine. And he goes and he digs another well and there's open space and the Lord gives it to him and he praises the Lord. He says, the Lord surely has given me this, this room to grow. And that makes me think that Isaac is good. And then we hit this train wreck today. And that makes me think that Isaac's bad. And there's one more even. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, this is that hall of faith. It's by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did this. It gets to this very troubling verse. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. (sighs) Which makes me think, it conscribes me, it commands me to look at the scripture and find some redeeming quality of Isaac out of this story. And if you do, if you go back and you look and if you you wrestle with the word, and if you wrestle with God about it, what you do see is there is some redeeming quality of Isaac even in his mistreatment of Jacob and for Esau. Because at the very least, what you do see is that Isaac does believe he has the promise. Isaac does acknowledge that he's carrying the promise of God and that he gives it in a very holy way. He gives it to Jacob unbeknownst to himself. But when Esau comes in and says, well, give it to me, he says, I can't. He says, I gave it to him and he's surely going to be blessed. There's a sense that Isaac recognizes the whole sanctity of it, almost as though Isaac recognizes that he was God. He got Jacobed, is what happened. 
that it's almost like he's saying to people, you got me. You got me. I tried to give it to Esau, but you got me. Jacob has it. I'm not taking it away. Have you ever read it? If you ever read it and you've wondered, why doesn't he just take it back? Wouldn't you in your own mind go, you tricked me? Well, you can't have it. It's the same day, for crying out loud. It's like a year later. It's as soon as Jacob leaves the tent, Esau walks in with a plate of food. You know, it's, I mean, that's a technicality. No court would hold this up. But, but Isaac says, I've blessed you. It's in a sense that Isaac recognizes God was in the seeing and the hearing of this. It's going to stand. And in fact, as the story unfolds next Sunday, you'll see that Isaac turns the corner very quickly on this. So is Isaac good or is he bad? It's not supposed to be simple. In fact, that's what I want to show. I want to show that this is a story of a real human being. We want, we want to make these flat characteristics about our, the characters of the Bible. We want to assume they're good or they're bad. They're good or they're bad. And I'm here to say that in two and a half chapters, the Bible is saying Isaac is a real human. He's a deep human who does good things and he does bad things, just like you and me. We, do, we have good days and we have bad days. There's things we do well, there's things we don't do well. There's sins that attract us and there's sins that don't bother us. We, depending on what minute the Lord's looking at us, he could go, he's good. Mm, he's bad. But that's good. But that's bad. Right? Isaac is a real human. He's a real human. But, but we as humans, we want to flatten people out. And we want to know, are they good or are they bad? Have you ever been in the minivan with your kid? And one of your son or your daughter says to you, Dad, is so-and-so a Christian? And you, you usually try to give that really holy answer like, well, only the Lord knows, but you can sure pray for them. But in your mind, you were asking the same question like, no, the guy's not a Christian. But you know the right Bible answer to give your kids. But nonetheless, in our minds, we've made, we've made these judgments. He's bad. He's good. People are deep. People are very deep. And they're not as flat as a celebrity. We can't just make these celebrity judgments about people because God doesn't make these judgments about people. In fact, I think we do this to ourselves. And to those around us. Someone walks into church, she's, she's dressed in a nice Sunday clothes, her kids are dressed nicely, they're quiet, they go to their class, they kiss their mom, they hug her, they tell her, I'm going to memorize a Bible verse just for you today. And you think, wow, she's good. She's good. Yet you're around another Christian who's just recently come to the Lord, and he's in a rough circle, and he'll drop a four-letter word, and your inclination is, wow, he's bad. Right? I think the Lord sees what people are coming from. I'm, I'm banking on that. Or we walk in, we do something really great one day. We do something fabulous, and we think, man, I'm good. Right? Or some of you, some of us, we do something really, really bad. Really bad. And we think to ourselves, I'm bad. The Lord is unconcerned about what you've done. He's concerned about who you are. He's not concerned about what you've done. See, we're trying to boil our salvation down to a good day 
we're trying to, to alienate ourselves from salvation because of a bad day. Some of you will not come to the cross of Jesus Christ because of the bad thing you did. You're going, I'm bad. And I'm here to say, you may have done a terrible thing. The last thing I want to do is lighten the load of your terrible thing. It may be a wreck. What I'm here to say is this God doesn't care what you've done. He cares about who you are. Jesus Christ died for the terrible thing. It's not in the way of Jesus Christ. It's why he came. But we have these flat ways of estimating our own worth. And I'm here to say this morning that God is concerned about the whole person. Not your good day. Not your bad day. He's concerned about you. We're not nearly so flat as we'd like to think. All right. Let's go beat up on Jacob for a little bit. Jacob. So Jacob's the patriarch. He's, he's the hero of the story. He walks away with this, this blessing. We're forced to kind of uh, consider him a good character by the Bible because, I mean, look, the 12 tribes of Israel come out of Jacob. The name Israel is, his, is Jacob's name. God names Jacob Israel. I mean, you, you're almost forced to go, wow, I guess he's good. He's good, right? I mean, God does all of this through Jacob. The Lord, when the Lord introduces himself to people, he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. If you were God's PR rep, wouldn't you tell him to stop saying that? Wouldn't you say, look, those guys don't do that. Have you read the stories? You wrote the stories for crying out loud. They're not good stories. But we're, we're stuck. We, we, Jacob, Jacob is a patriarch of, of the Hebrew kingdom. He is someone to whom the promise is passed. The, Jacob dies in the second to last chapter of the book of Genesis. So starting in Genesis 27 to Genesis 49 is about Jacob for the most part. He's a big character. And this is how he gets his blessing. Some scholars are so bothered by this that they've convinced themselves that Jacob's righteous. Now, I'm not talking one or two. I'm talking a number of scholars. What they do is they go, well, since God's used Jacob in a mighty way, since he ends out being very pivotal and important to the kingdom of God, he must be significant and righteous. So here's my check for that. This is is Jacob righteous here. I call this the Ten Commandment Test. In this story, let's count how many of the Ten Commandments he violates. I'm going to go backwards from ten to one. Does he covet? Check. Does he lie? Check. Does he steal? Check. Does he commit adultery? No. Good for him. (laughs) He doesn't murder, so he's got two going for him. Does he honor his father and mother? Check. Does he violate the Sabbath? We'll give him the benefit of the doubt that this happened on a Wednesday. <laughs> right? Does he misuse the name of the Lord? Yes. How did you get this food here so quick? He says, the Lord, your God, blessed me. Does he, is he guilty of carving a graven image? No. Does he have other gods before him? Yes. I think that almost every sin, every sin that I can imagine, is a violation of the first and the tenth commandment. We want something, and we place it in front of God. And the eight in the middle fall because of the two on the outside. Jacob wants the promise. He doesn't want God. It isn't even his God. The Lord, your God, he says, gave me favor. 
He wants the promise. It's like Christians who want to get to heaven. They're just not sure they want to hang out with Jesus. And I'm saying you live a li- you're living a life in violation of God's code. Jacob's not righteous. But what we want is we want him to be deserving, don't we? We want to just open the Bible and read a story and say, well, this guy deserves the promise. This is how the story does. And so here's my question for you this morning. Do you realize what you do to the gospel of Jesus Christ when you want someone like Jacob to be deserving? Like when you read a story in the Bible like this and you see the wreckage of the family and you see everything going wrong and you're like, why does God use these people? Certainly there was a family down the street he could have used. Why does he use these people this way? Why? They're so undeserving. When you say that, do you realize what you do to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What you're saying is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of God given to us, should come to deserving people? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that you're deserving in some way? That you've somehow deserved the gift of God that you've been given? We don't have Jesus because we're deserving. We have come to Christ the same way that Jacob has got this blessing. God's given it to him, though undeserving, because it's God's will, and because it's God's favor. Jesus Christ came not because, not to save deserving people. He came to save an undeserving people for whom he had love. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he writes. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That's like the best verse. And that's what some of you were. God's saying, you didn't deserve it. But Jesus came and saved you. He says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. The question is not, why does God use undeserving people? The question is, why does God choose to love undeserving people? This story, these three things, I think are all gospel-centered here. That salvation of Jesus Christ has been offered to you not because you're deserving, but precisely because you're not. You are in need of salvation. That's what makes it salvation. The second thing I'll say is is God is unimpressed with your good days, and he's undeterred by your bad days. He's uninterested in what you've done. He's interested in who you are. He came to redeem all of who you are. The pieces that you haven't given him, he wants the things that you still have an appetite for. He wants the Spirit to satisfy. He wants all of you, so that you do not hunger and thirst for the things of this world, but rather hunger and thirst for the things of righteousness from above. We are all like Jacob. 